The issue has inspired debates, global agreements, and acts of protest. Some even argue it's simply not real. Anytime you're dealing with something that's going to involve trillions of dollars, politics is going to get involved with it. But science shows Earth's climate is changing and has been changing throughout history. That evidence has taken the form of rising temperatures, shrinking ice sheets, and more extreme weather events. Floods, hurricanes, wow. and raging wildfires. You would not be seeing the unprecedented extreme weather events that we're seeing if not for human-caused climate change. New research says children will bear 88% of the burden of disease related to climate change. You may notice the month of May was a little toastier than normal. And that's because Earth just experienced its hottest May on record. It's a global issue with local implications. What does the future climate of Texas look like? Why is that something you should care about? And how did this issue become so polarizing? KSAT explains. KSAT explains. KSAT explains. KSAT explains. On-demand, in-depth perspective. Perspective on stories we bring you in our newscasts throughout the day. This week's episode of KSAT Explains is all about the facts and science of climate change. Thanks for joining us for this week's edition of KSAT Explains. I'm Myra Arthur. If you've seen this show before, you know that we take on one topic and go exploring, sharing the ins and the outs, giving it context. Well, this week we're talking about climate change and we're turning to our own weather team to take the reins for this episode. Meteorologist Sarah Spivey and Katie Blake explain the scientific topic that's become a hot button issue. As meteorologists, it's our job to keep you informed about the weather. But something we get asked about a lot is climate change. What is it? Is that what global warming is? And is it even real? <laughs> and while the two are definitely related, weather and climate are not the same thing. So let's start there. What's the difference between weather and climate? Well, one way to visualize the difference between the two is to imagine weather being a very young, inexperienced baby and climate as an older, very wise person. Okay, I know this is strange, but, but just stick with us. <laughs> yeah, as meteorologists, we focus on the weather, short-term atmospheric events. Climatologists, however, monitor long-term weather patterns and trends. That's what climate is. Weather can be very erratic and temperamental, just like a baby, full of <laughs> quick changes and seemingly random events. Take, for example, experiencing a severe thunderstorm in the middle of a drought or a very strong cold front in the heart of spring. Right. Climate, on the other hand, takes into account the average weather patterns over a long period of time, usually at least 30 years. This means that climates are fairly well established and steady, just like the personality of an older person who has had years to understand the way that life works. A good example of climate would be the fact that West Texas tends to be dry in the spring, while East Texas usually gets quite a bit of rain. Yeah. Lastly, as meteorologists forecasting the weather, there are often immediate and sudden weather hazards like tornadoes, flash flooding, hail, and even hurricanes. All of those things warrant watches and warnings from the National Weather Service. Meanwhile, if climatologists notice any changes in the average weather pattern, that may actually hint at long-term hazards. 
So, since we are not climatologists, we had the opportunity to speak with one. Dr. Nielsen Gammon of Texas A&M University will help us understand the history of climate in Texas and current climate trends in the Lone Star State. Climate change in general is a very normal process that's been a part of the Earth's past. Climate has changed uh, over the course of the Earth's history, actually. Of course, the Earth has changed also. Continents have rearranged and so forth. Um, and there have been very dramatic shifts over millions of years. There was, there was a, a few times when practically the entire Earth was snow-covered, and other times when there was basically only ice on the highest mountain peaks. Uh, we entered a particularly variable climate period uh, a few million years ago when we started getting these episodic ice sheets covering parts of North America and Europe. Uh, recently, that's been going on with about a uh, cycle of about 100, 120,000 years. So we're about 10,000 years since the last ice age. And uh, at that time, before, before we recovered from the ice age, the uh, temperatures were obviously cooler in Texas. It was also drier. Uh, there was a lot more forest cover, particularly in the mountains of West Texas. Um, since about 6,000 years ago, we've been pretty steadily warm and wet in some periods, dry in others. But essentially, um, if, if you went back in time a few thousand years ago, you probably wouldn't be able to see uh, much difference other than the considerably lower population density and the lack of freeways. However, recent trends have shown a considerable increase in global temperature. Uh, we've also experienced a fairly substantial uh, warming trend in Texas over the past 40 years, and that coincides with the warming trend that's been going on over the entire globe, basically. And it's also at the pace that we would expect, um, given the global climate change that's being driven primarily by greenhouse gases. So in Texas, at least, the temperature trend has overwhelmed uh, natural variability. And that's why any, in any given month, we're much more likely to set a maximum temperature record than a minimum temperature record. As was just mentioned, greenhouse gases are the main driver of climate change around the globe. But greenhouse gases and the greenhouse gas effect itself are actually not inherently bad. In fact, our planet would be uninhabitable if it weren't for the greenhouse gas effect. Here's our Earth. And every day on Earth, we breathe in nitrogen and oxygen. Those are the two primary components of our atmosphere. A very small percentage, less than 1% of our atmosphere, is made of these gases that trap in heat from the sun. And without these gases, heat would actually escape back out into space. And that would mean that the Earth would be much colder, likely covered in ice. Instead, these greenhouse gases that are present in our atmosphere act like a blanket or a greenhouse to keep in the heat, regulating the Earth's temperature and making it perfect for sustaining life. But it's important to note that this is a delicate balance and significant increases in these gases has led to a global warming trend. So let's take a look, a closer look at each of these individual greenhouse gases. And before I begin, I want to mention that these gases are naturally occurring in our atmosphere. However, a significant increase in these gases, these greenhouse gases, is directly correlated with the Industrial Revolution and the mid 20th century. Got it? All right. So first, let's take a look about water vapor. Water 
in the gas form is the most abundant greenhouse gas in our atmosphere. And it's generally a very good thing. It allows for cloud formation and weather patterns, but air with more water in it can hold more heat and that could lead to more evaporation and that puts more water into the air, warming the air even further. The second greenhouse gas we'll talk about is by far the most important contributor to human-caused global warming. It's carbon dioxide. CO2 is released when fossil fuels are burned for energy and transportation. And according to the EPA, it actually counts for 81% of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Next, methane, good old methane. As a gas, methane traps a lot of heat. And scientists consider methane the second most important contributor to human-caused global warming. Methane is produced from sources such as rice fields and cattle raising, both of which have greatly increased thanks to the worldwide population boom and food needs around the globe. Finally, nitrous oxide is a greenhouse gas which is produced by some factories and power plants and plant fertilizer. Nitrous oxide breaks down the protective ozone layer in our atmosphere. So that's a snapshot of the greenhouse gases that have been increasing, mainly because of humans, and especially since the mid 20th century. Now, the good news. There are things that you and I can do to limit the amount of greenhouse gases being put into the atmosphere. The biggest thing? reduce our carbon footprint. A carbon footprint is the amount of carbon dioxide and methane that someone produces based on their habits and their consumption. You can think of a carbon footprint on an individual level. For example, I have my own carbon footprint. However, groups of people, businesses, states, and countries have their own carbon footprints too. So here are a few things we can do. Number one, walk or bike when you can. Keeping your motor vehicle in the garage when possible helps to cut down on emissions. Number two, eat local. This can include picking up more local products at the grocery store and or going to the nearest farmer's market to pick up produce. Buying local will also cut down on emissions since a lot of food we get at the store is first shipped across the country and even parts of the world before it makes it into our grocery baskets. On a similar note, number three, cut down on your red meat consumption. This will again help to cut down on shipping emissions. However, red meat like beef actually leaves behind a much bigger carbon footprint in the production stages versus that of chicken, for example. Basically, it takes more resources to produce, package, and ship red meat. However, experts don't suggest you cut out red meat totally. No, definitely not. Even just a small change can help if enough people get on board. Something that's actually caught on recently, meatless Mondays, very Instagrammable. And number four, plant a garden or plant anything, really. A garden can provide you with your own source of fruits, veggies, and herbs, cutting out the transportation emissions that occur when you go get those things at the store. If you don't have the room for a garden, if you just have a patio or something like that, just planting flowers or other vegetation can reduce the amount of CO2 in the air since plants absorb carbon dioxide. So by reducing our carbon footprints, we can help slow the effects of climate change. So a changing climate doesn't necessarily mean there will be immediate show-stopping changes in our day-to-day -day weather. For example, you're not gonna walk outside tomorrow to the hottest temperatures ever recorded <laughs> and a declaration that climate change has officially arrived. Right, rather the changes to our weather here in Texas will be more subtle and gradual, but still noticeable, especially in the next 15 to 20 years. Earlier in this episode, we introduced you to Dr. Nielsen Gammon from Texas A&M University. In his role as faculty member and state climate 
climatologist, Dr. Nielsen Gammon helped author some scientific literature about Texas's changing climate. Yeah, and here is that assessment. It's called the Assessment of Historic and Future Trends of Extreme Weather in Texas from 1900 to 2036. And it was actually published in March of this year. And it offers a look at different aspects of Texas weather and how they're expected to change by the year 2036. So let's start with temperature. According to that Texas A&M assessment, Texas's average temperature is expected to increase 1.6 degrees by the year 2036. Part of the reason we'll see that increase, we're going to see more 100 degree days throughout the year. Well, how many more 100 degree days? The Texas A&M study states that the number of triple digit days in 2036 will be double what it was on average between 2000 and 2018. Here in San Antonio, that means that we could see 36 100 degree days in a summer alone. Now, in the past, we've seen way more 100 degree days than that in the summer. Yeah, in fact, just look at 2009. That's when we saw the most 100 degree days in San Antonio at 59. And what's concerning is that 36 100 degree days will be the new normal. So these records will likely be broken. And a note about the cooler months is something you might conclude is that the cooler months will be warmer and you're exactly right. The study notes that temperatures are also expected to increase on days of extreme cold of up to 5.6 degrees from the 1900 to the 1999 average. All this to say colder days are going to start to get warmer as well. And Dr. Nielsen Gammon also suggested that there's more confidence in the effect climate change will have on temperature versus precipitation. However, the authors of that A&M study were able to conclude some things about precipitation, mainly by the year 2036. The Texas climate is expected to be a lot drier overall. However, there are signs that point to the likelihood of extreme precipitation events like flash flooding. Those will likely become more intense. This means that while there will be less rain across the state as a whole, flash flooding events could end up being more devastating. Yeah, and another consequence of climate change is sea level rise, and that is expected to continue along the Gulf Coast through 2036. This rise could begin to threaten ecosystems and structures along the Texas coastline. So we've said a lot here, but if you'd like to check out the assessment that we've been referencing for yourself, all you gotta do is head over to the website of the Texas State Climatologist. So as you just saw, Texas is looking at its climate changing in several ways. So I decided to ask Dr. Nielsen Gammon what he believes, if he had to pick just one thing, is the biggest climate challenge facing Texas at this time. And as you'll find out, it's just not that simple. Now, on the one hand, climate change is challenging the state in terms of the combination of higher temperatures and more extreme rainfall. Uh, we expect uh, the intensity of rainfall to increase, and we've seen it increased in the past. And so that makes makes uh, agriculture more vulnerable to climate change. Um, it makes our infrastructure more vulnerable also, and especially along the coast where, where sea level rise is going to increase the likelihood of flooding from the Gulf of Mexico at the same time more intense rainfall increases the likelihood of freshwater flooding. So uh, it's sort of a convergence of climate factors that represents a, a challenge to uh, Texas in terms of climate. However, it won't just be weather-related events like rain or temperatures that challenge the Lone Star State in the future. 
Rather, it's our economy that we'll need to adjust to, an economy heavily reliant on fossil fuels due to the oil and gas industry. We need to concern ourselves with, with, with developing a, a, a robust economy that will survive in a renewable energy world. And when money gets involved, things can get a little, shall we say, heated? No pun intended. So climate change is one of those things that has become a political hot button issue. Uh, you can go everywhere and get vastly different political opinions on climate change. Some people think that climate change is important and policy needs to be made. I think it's definitely real. It's an existential threat to the planet. We really gotta uh, support climate change because eventually, right now we don't feel the effects, but I feel like the next generation will feel the effects. While others, on the other hand, feel like climate change is either potentially a hoax or even something that is overblown and the government shouldn't pay much attention to it. So why is something that is scientifically based, like climate change, why has that become political? These days, climate change isn't just a scientific topic. It's also become part of a controversial conversation. So has it always been so political? Dr. Neil Debage is an assistant professor of political science and geography at UTSA. He says to answer that question, you have to look at two things. What climate change is and how that's separate from what we do about it. While the science of climate change isn't inherently political, what we do about it is. Anytime you're dealing with something that's going to involve trillions of dollars, politics is going to get involved with it. And we have to think about what politics are and what they're trying to accomplish. They're basically just a way for groups of people to achieve collective action. And over the years, not unlike trends we've seen elsewhere in politics, polarization has enhanced. If we look back in time, back into the 1980s, it was not really that divisive of an issue at all. Um, so one great example is the, the Montreal Protocol in the 1980s, where the whole world unified around this cause. So this was to address the ozone hole. Uh, created a policy and now we're seeing the benefits of that today with the ozone hole recovering. So we were able to achieve through politics uh, collective action that has been greatly beneficial. But now, thanks in part to an increasingly polarized public, climate change can be controversial even to discuss. Climate change is sort of the worst case scenario for, for political uh, contamination of scientific issues, shall we say, because fossil fuels have been essentially an enemy of the environmental movement for, for years. And so when it became clear that they were contributing to climate change, the environmental movement readily latched onto that. And others saw that as basically being opportunistic and trying to find any excuse to get, to get rid of fossil fuels. Dr. Debage says another obstacle when trying to combat climate change, an increase in attacks on science and expertise. He says it's something we've seen even in response to the pandemic. A lot of these uh, issues like the pandemic, like climate change, are very inconvenient issues. So they're tough to hear about, and, and we understand that. And the enormity of the issue makes it a hard one for many to address. The primary benefits of doing so will accrue to our children and grandchildren rather than to ourselves means that we're having to e imagine a benefit rather than actually experiencing it directly. Dr. Debich says it's up to the experts to communicate the tangible effects of climate change. And there's some really interesting studies that have already 
kind of started trying to accomplish that that have shown how things as simple as cereal and coffee, those prices are going to increase. So what you're eating on your breakfast table every morning is going to be impacted by climate change because we know with more erratic uh, weather and climate, that's going to impact agriculture. And he says making the issue tangible to get everyone on board is important because addressing climate change effectively requires a community-wide effort. Collective action is really important because we can make individual decisions that can help, uh, but really it's these broader uh, structural uh, issues in terms of energy supply, energy usage, and that really requires collective action and, and politics. As meteorologists, we can only relay what the science is clearly telling us. As a whole, the Earth has been steadily warming since the Industrial Revolution and even more so since the 1950s. And we hope we've been able to explain that science a little bit better today. When we talk about climate, we're talking in terms of decades or centuries, and that can be hard to wrap our minds around, and that's why it can be difficult to get real momentum for change. This isn't going to affect me today, so why does it matter what I do today or tomorrow? Yeah, however, what we do today and tomorrow and in the next 50 years will have consequences for many years to come. Thanks for joining us for this episode of KSAT Explains.